Our message today comes to us from the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 5 through 16, and it reads like this. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain that that they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, to commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him in their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is the blessed word from our Lord. Well, if you have been here the last two or three weeks, you know that we're in a series called Church. And this series is precipitated by a... uh, uh, proposed changes in our bylaws. Uh, we've emailed those out to you. There's now a link on our website where you can go grab uh, those and look at them. Just go under about and you'll see uh, a link that says proposed bylaws. Uh, the most significant change in those bylaws is going from a pastor deacon model to a elder model or a plurality of elders, more than one elder, uh, elder pastor being, inter- being an interchangeable term. So let me just explain to you what precipitated this. It was probably seven or eight years ago that the burden of being the only elder, in a sense, here at Grace, the only pastor, became way too significant for me to bear. Uh, I recall uh, during that time of just day in and day out of heavy burden, heavy difficulty trying to uh, be that, uh, that elder here. So I went to our deacons at the time and said to them, I really need you to function like elders. I need to be able to bring to you the burdens of pastoring, uh, of of, uh, being the the pastor here at Grace. And since then, our deacons essentially functioned as elders. And I've been able to bring into that room uh, the burdens, the the challenges that uh, come my way as pastor here at Grace. And so that is the the main difference. There are a couple other smaller things, but that is the main difference. 
I believe it is the, the uh, most biblical way to have church leadership, and I believe it's the healthiest way for the church and for the leaders, and so that is why that these uh, bylaws are coming to you. Our team's worked on them for three years, and uh, we're excited to see what God has uh, for us. Uh, it is interesting how Paul uh, to Titus describes it. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. If you dig underneath that word order in Greek is, uh, is a word uh, from where we get the word orthos or ortho. A few years ago, I was, uh, I was doing premarital counseling with a couple of Montreat students at my home. It was actually at my home, and uh, we were in the living room. We had the French doors closed, and we were just sitting there doing premarital. My son and his cousin were playing outside. They were riding a scooter. When Trent comes running in, and, and when he does, uh, he uh, is holding his arm, and he said, Dad, I think my arm is broken. And I looked at it, and I said, You think? It looked like this. And so what had happened is his scooter, as he was driving it, he, riding it, he had stopped and that little electric scooter thing just fell over on his arm and broke it right in two. I mean, just broke his arm in two. So I said to the couple, well, premarital is over. Uh, this is premarital counseling. And so left, took him, and uh, he had to have like that thing said a couple of times. It was so stubborn. Well, that's what this word orthos is. It, it means to set what is crooked. So why would Paul say that to uh, Titus, who is his uh, uh, protege? Why would he say to Titus, I want you to point elders in every city to set uh, crooked things straight? The reason is, is that straight things get crooked, don't they? Uh, That just happens. You don't have to try to make straight things crooked. Um, That just happens. Uh, You have to work to get crooked things straight. And that indeed is the task of elders here, to make crooked things straight. It is interesting task that is given here. Crete uh, was an island, is an island, about 160 miles across, 37 miles north to south, not large. Had a couple of cities, bigger cities, and other smaller ones. Apparently, Paul has been there with Titus. Titus is not a Cretan, so Titus isn't going home to do ministry. But Paul has been there with Titus, and he says, Titus, go back to Crete and appoint elders who will make crooked things straight. So there is the task. Let's look then at an elder, uh, and we'll see an elder's character here. We'll see an elder's charge, and we'll, we'll see an elder's confession. Let's look at an elder's character. They must be blameless. Uh, let's talk about what the word blameless isn't. Uh, the word occurs twice to describe the elder's character. It doesn't mean perfect. If that were the case, there would be none, right? It doesn't mean perfect. What does it mean? Unable for anyone to bring a charge against of unrepentant sin. An elder must be someone that someone else cannot charge, bring a charge against of active, unrepentant sin. In two categories. 
First of all, in his relationship with his wife and children, and second, in his personal character. So let's look at what Paul spells out here. He talks about the husband of one wife, and that phrase literally means a man of one woman or a one-woman kind of man. So scholars have looked at this and said this could mean a variety of things that an elder is or isn't a one-woman kind of man. Uh, Maybe he has to be married, right? So an elder can't be single, or maybe he could never be divorced, or some other things like that. And so when we look at it and kind of synthesize it down, I think we can summarize it in this statement. If an elder's wife doesn't trust him, the church shouldn't either. Bottom line, if an elder's wife doesn't trust him, the church shouldn't either. That's how we can summarize this in a rather simple take-home way. What does that mean? It means for me, and it's a little bit strange to preach a sermon that puts, puts uh, uh, my responsibilities just out in front of everybody. All of you can hold me accountable now. It means my number one responsibility isn't to you, but it's to my wife and my children. It is what it means. It means when I stand before God, I will be uh, held accountable first and foremost for how I was to Wendy and how I was to Trent and Hannah. That's what it means. Uh, And then his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, there is an assumption this refers to kids who are at home over which the elder has authority and leadership. What does it mean? Uh, What is debauchery? That's an old word, isn't it? Right? We don't use that word too often these days. Maybe we should. Uh, It's a fitting word. Peter describes it in 1 Peter 4, 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here it is. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That is the definition of debauchery. It is a completely prodigal life. So that's what we would say is debauchery. What that means is if I cannot lead my children, I cannot lead you. That's simply put what that means, right? So if my wife doesn't trust me, you shouldn't trust me. And if my children won't follow me, neither should you. That's tough, right? That's tough. I must say to you that in my 17 years of being here, I am grateful that you have never, ever as a church expected my wife or my kids to be in the limelight for them to uh, achieve a certain standard or status that is unreal or unexpected or unattainable. My wife is not a typical pastor's wife at all. You know, when, when we were dating and I proposed to her, I, I did this outlandish proposal. I was, I was sharing this with my students in class at Montreat recently, and they looked at me like, oh my gosh, are you serious? 
But when I saw Wendy on a uh, Sunday night in worship, which is a good place to meet a girl, uh, when I saw her on a Sunday night in worship, I looked over across the aisle and saw her, and I, I knew her for years. But you know when you know somebody and then when you see them, see them? Those are two different things. And so I had seen her, but that night I saw her. And I looked at her and I was like, whoa. And so uh, I didn't waste any time about an hour after service that night. I, uh, we were hanging out at the same place. I called her out and I said, uh, listen, uh, I was just uh, wanted to ask you a question. She said, what is it? And I said, uh, well, uh, I, I, this is honestly what I said. I can't believe it, but here it comes. I said, I wouldn't ask you this if I didn't think you'd be my wife. She looked at me like, what are you doing? And so I said, I want to know if you'll go out with me, pray about it for a week and let me know. She was like, okay. Like, there's nothing that preceded that. Nothing. That was it. A week later, she, she uh, came to me and she said, yes. Six months later, we're engaged. Six months later, we're married, right? You see a good thing, you go for it. But in all of that time that we're talking it was back and forth, are you good with being a pastor's wife? Like, are you good with that? She's, she's never taught a class or a group. That's not her deal, right? She's just never done it. She's never been on this stage, not once. And she never wants to be. But the people who have been through our home that she has fed and loved and cared for is unbelievable, Absolutely. That's her thing. That's her deal. That's what she does. And I said the same thing in the early service where she was sitting. That's what she does. And you as a church have never expected anything but for her to be her. And I so appreciate that. And my kids don't have to be in everything that happens here. They don't have to do everything that happens here. You as a church have never, ever expected my daughter or my son to be perfect. And I so appreciate that. But they can't be insubordinate. If they won't listen to me, that's, that's what it says here. You shouldn't either. You shouldn't either. It's big. It's huge. Incidentally, Paul isn't asking more of the elder than he would ask of any of us, is he? It's just that if this doesn't exist in my life, I can't be an elder, and uh, neither can you. But there's a metaphor that Paul uses here, and I don't want us to lose it. I don't want us to lose it, and the metaphor is that of a steward. Please hear me. There are two metaphors used to describe the two primary church leaders, and those were elders and deacons, and neither of them are to write home about. One is a steward, and the second is a slave. And so I would say to you that if you think, I want to get in church work so that I can have whatever fill in the blank, you are barking up the wrong tree. It isn't for you. What was a steward? A steward was someone who worked in someone else's house, slept in their bed, not his own, uh, and managed the other person's house. That's what a steward did. A steward never lived for himself, ever. 
only lived for the good of the person whose house he managed. When God calls people to serve his elders, it is not at all a self-serving thing. Elders are selfless stewards of God's house. Selfless stewards of God's house. I'm convinced that, uh, of the, the old quote, I wish I could remember it verbatim, but says that if you long to serve, if God calls you to serve as a pastor, as an elder in God's house, you die a little bit at a time. And it is so true. It is so true. Your task is to serve God's house, to sleep in God's bed, to do God's work. And at the end of the day and at the end of your life, you will have been measured by how God's house fared under you. That's what it means to be a steward. So there's some do's and don'ts. What are they? Paul lists them. First of all, the don'ts, he must not be arrogant, literally self-willed. Not self-willed, meaning no personal agendas. Number two, are quick-tempered. It's the only place, it's like Paul coined this phrase for Titus, the opposite of peaceable, not a drunkard, not addicted to alcohol, not violent, a bruiser. Literally is the word a bruiser. Quarrelsome. No place for it in the leadership of the church or greedy for gain. Those who take from others, even though they have an abundance of what they take. One uh, scholar said these are different sins of self, pride, anger, desire for drink, dominance, and wealth. An elder is a selfless steward. So please hear me. Please hear me. In our culture, and I'm not saying this is only in the American culture. I think it's around the world. We have a tendency to place really the teaching elder on a pedestal. So that would be me here. We have a tendency to do that and assume that somehow I might be void of the same struggles with sin you are. Could I ask you? I've asked this for years running. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. I am made of the same flesh that you are. As a matter of fact, we'll see it in the next list. We'll see it in the next list. We have a tendency to do this. We, we have so popularized famous or well-known preachers, right, that we hear them from a distance and see them from a distance and podcast them, myself included. And we do that, and we just assume that they are at this level of spirituality that somehow you or I cannot achieve. That so is not the case. And we must not do it with local pastors, local elders either. Uh, so in our house, we have a die-hard Green Bay fan. Right? Our son loves some Green Bay Packers. He's just a die-hard fan. He really does. He's got the jerseys and everything. I mean, that's his deal. For his 16th birthday, he wants to go up. And his birthday's in December. Yes. And why I ever said yes to that, I don't know. I mean, just go sit and freeze to death, right, while while celebrating your team. But he's a diehard Green Bay fan. So last Sunday, I apologize in advance, or maybe I don't, to the Cowboys fans in the room. But last Sunday, Green Bay, the Cowboys are playing, and our house got a tad loud. 
You see, uh, the Cowboys were up. The, uh, you know, the Packers were down. But Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, he gets the ball uh, with a minute, I think, 23 to go. He's on the 25-yard line. He's got to take the ball down the field 75 yards. And so he begins this drive as only Aaron Rodgers could do, right? And he begins this drive, and it's one pass here and another pass there. And then he's got this kind of scampering run, and he gets maybe 12, 15 yards out of the scampering run. And sure enough, with just a few seconds to go, Rodgers passes it into the end zone, into the corner. His receiver grabs it, and uh, there's no time for Dallas to do anything. Game over in Dallas. Green Bay wins. And there was no shortage of yelling in my house at all. Max uh, Kellerman uh, the next day called Rogers, and I know this is highly debatable, uh, the greatest who ever did it, he said. But here's what Rogers was quoted saying in a recent article I love being coached, I love talking football with smart coaches, I love the input, the dialogue, the conversation. His team's head coach, Mike McCarthy, added, Aaron is a really good student. He wants to be coached, and he likes to be coached hard. Steph Curry, one of the best basketball players in the NBA, has the same attitude. Uh, Same article. One of his coaches said, he's the most educable player I've ever known, both in terms of his willingness to listen and in his ability to absorb and execute. The best leaders are the best followers. The best leaders are the best followers. Right now, in the life of this church, I'm reaching out to other pastors who are uh, beyond where we are to say, I so need your wisdom. Why, I do. There is so much that we don't know, right? So that's the negative. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. What is an elder on the positive? Hospitable. Hospitable. First Peter 4 9 sums this up. I love this, right? Show hospitality, hospitality to one another without grumbling. So let me say something to you. If when you have people over, you can't wait for them to leave, you don't have the gift of hospitality. You don't, right? If you can't wait for them to leave, don't have them over again. If when people leave, you go, I thought they'd never leave. They stayed here forever. The kids were climbing all over everything. The house is a wreck. Then guess what? Take them out to eat the next time. That just means you don't have that gift. It's okay. There are other people who do. And when they do, they're the kind of people who cook a meal. And while the kitchen is dirty, they sit down and eat with you. And it doesn't phase them, right? They're not frantic over their house. They can just have people over. So I would summarize hospitable with this one little sentence. Love those you lead. Love those you lead. That's what it means to be hospitable. Love those you lead. However you do it, love those you lead. Number two, a lover of good. A lover of good, promoting virtue, loving goodness. What does that mean? Love people like they are and love people for who they can be. One of our top ten values here is positive life change. What do we mean by that? We mean that however you come here, we're good with that. We just don't want you to stay like that. That's all it means. However you come to us, 
So we think of you, honestly, uh, if you come to starting point, you'll hear this. We think of you on a negative 10 uh, to to zero, pre-Christian. Don't know God, and if you're a negative 10, you don't want to know God, right? You might be here because your parents drag you here or because you've got a friend who's just begged you to come. Pre-Christian, angry perhaps, or, or, or maybe just a skeptic, whatever it may be. And then those who have passed from death to life, right? Uh, from darkness to light, uh, one to 10, like 10 being Billy Graham, all right? So super spiritual loves the Lord uh, all the way down. And, and our goal is to help you to move from one to the next to the next. It's positive life change. It's how we do what we do. All right, so Gino came up to me. Uh, Gino uh, normally plays the harmonica up here. Five years ago today, right, Gino? Five years ago today, Gino had something going on in his throat. And on a Sunday, said something to me about it. I said, why don't you grab one of our doctors here and uh, talk to them? I think he did, Kathy or somebody else. And I think that very day, or the very next day, went to the doctor only to discover he had cancer. And, uh, and so we walked through that together, Gino, Debbie, and I, and several of you. And Gino said to me this morning, Jerry, my faith was all over the place. At times I wondered where God was. I, I just wasn't where. At times I felt like I needed to be with that. But he sits here five years later, cancer-free, praise the Lord, but also faith strong. Amen? Yeah. That's positive life change, right? That's what we're about. You see, you have no idea, neither do I, what's going to come your way. You don't. But our number one desire is that when it comes, you love Jesus more after it came than you did before. Amen? That's our desire. That's what we want for you. That's what we long for, for you. That's, that's our desire. We don't know what, what life may bring you, but we know who holds your life. And, and so love people like they are. Love people for who they can be. Self-controlled, uh, curbing one's desires and impulses. And I told you we'd get to this. Uh, this wouldn't be put in there if the elder did not have desires and impulses. Elders have sinful desires. Just, I do, as do you. Once, once God called me to be an elder, or any of you he calls to be elders, your sinful desires won't go away. They just won't. If they did, there'd be a whole bunch of us. They won't. We must be self-controlled, upright, law-abiding, uh, living according to God's law, holy, meaning free from wickedness and then disciplined. It's in all arenas of life. That's an elder's character. How about an elder's charge? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, There's really another word Paul could have used here for instruction. It's fascinating to me. The word most often used is the word from which we get our word didactic. Didasco, to teach. It's not the word here. So I'm going to uh, throw out another Greek word because it'll ring a bell with some of you. Parakaleo, paraclete, also used to describe the spirit. That's the word here, used here. Why? My teaching can never be separated from my love for you. 
I can't do that as an elder, as a teaching elder. I must love those I teach. And so that's why the instruction, the word for instruction here means to come alongside. It means that my teaching must be mixed with compassion, concern, and commitment. I must be here for you. Any elder must be that. Selfless steward, right? I'm not here for me. I'm not here for my own ambition or my own career or my my own name or anything like that. I just can't. Uh, This word means one who comes alongside so, so it is my task to teach in such a way, to preach in such a way, so that my heart oozes out and you see uh, in the depths of who I am and, and know that I so want you to get it and the gospel to get you. Uh, what? Sound doctrine. And it's not always what you want to hear. That's the reality is that, is that, There are a lot of people who just want to hear what they want to hear. Just tell me stuff to make me feel better. And and know it's sound doctrine. And then also the firmness of rebuke. That I must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. That there are those who Paul is going to address who come in and they contradict, not opinions, but they contradict sound doctrine. Right, I think I shared this a few weeks ago, but when Trent was in the height of his illness, a woman who was attending church here sent me an email. And in her email said to me that if I'd had more faith, that Trent wouldn't be sick. That was her assertion. If I have more faith, and she went on in the email even to say I brought on the illness that not only could I was not holding it at bay, but I actually had invited his illness by my lack of faith. And so I brought that email to this church. She wasn't a member here, but I brought it here to say to everyone listening to me, hogwash, that is wrong. It is not scriptural. It is not sound doctrine. Believe this and you will live in constant guilt over your life. Right? This isn't the gospel. Now, who are these enemies of the faith Paul is talking about? There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Uh, Paul uh, says strong things about them. They're insubordinate. They're rebels. They won't follow leaders. They talk a lot and, and do a little. And they're deceivers. This word deceiver is literally a seducer. We might say brainwashers. They're brainwashers. Who are the circumcision party? They seem to follow Paul around. And I honestly wonder if Paul sent Titus to them on purpose. Why? Paul was so strategic. Uh, let's jump over to Galatians 2, 3 through 5. But he, Titus was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So what was the deal? Those of the circumcision party said, in addition to trusting Jesus as Lord, you need to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law. So it's Jesus plus. 
And so we would say, well, that sounds so strange to us today. I agree. To speak of it in those terms, and, and circumcision, uncircumcision, Jewish law, uh, sounds so strange today. But legalism is legalism regardless of how it shows itself. So what is legalism? Legalism is anything that adds to the requirements to know God, anything that's not in the Word as a requirement to know God. No matter what it is. It evidences itself in two arenas, moral legalism and theological legalism. Let me speak to the moral. What is moral legalism? Moral legalism is do this and don't do this, right? So I grew up in moral legalism. I've shared that with you before, I think, but I grew up in moral legalism so that we couldn't do so many different things. Never went to a movie. By the time I had gone to college, I had never been to a movie in my life. I had never listened to secular music of any kind. I had never worn a pair of shorts, as that was deemed sinful. My mother did not cut her hair, nor did she wear makeup, nor did she wear jewelry. I had never been to a ball game of any kind, as that also was considered to be sinful, and so I had never done that as well. You could imagine college was a tad bit eye-opening. It was. Like in 24 hours, I saw what I hadn't seen in 18 years. Unbelievable. That's legalism. We didn't have a television in our house. Never watched television. Carol Davis is sitting here. I always say this. Carol works for 106.9, as many of you know. But I could even listen to 106.9 because it wasn't King James only and it wasn't Southern Gospel. And no lie, when when I got a car, I'd sneak and I would ride around in it and listen to 106.9. I was a real rebel. Um, (laughs) Right? Really was. So we'll go home for Thanksgiving in, in a few weeks and now my parents have two televisions. My mom will be wearing slacks. She cuts her hair now. Uh, my whole family's going to hell. <laughs> They've lost it. Right? And I, but, but seriously, I do admire my parents who later in life realized that was legalism. And they ought to lose it. That's moral legalism. There's also uh, theological legalism just theological legalism. It takes a tier two issue, makes it a tier one issue. And if you don't agree with me on the tier two, then we can't agree on anything. I find that to be most evident in the theological world today in big word alert, soteriology, salvation, right? Predestination versus anything other than. And in the second return of Christ. Those are the two arenas where, where that, that tends to be what grabs people's attention. And if you don't believe them in that, you don't go with them in that, then perhaps you don't know Christ. Or you're not really in. Right? And so, some people do it for shameful gain. So please hear me. There are people out there who if they can deceive your mind, they'll get your money. They're all over television and the internet today. 
you should be very careful. And if you have any questions, you should ask. You really should. Third, an elder's confession. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Here's what's interesting is that scholars agree that, that Paul in his instruction to Timothy turns away from the deceivers here and that the rebuke them sharply is for those who have been deceived. What does it mean? It means that sometimes we can be so lulled into the wrong way of thinking that it takes, it takes an elder to look at you and say, uh, 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 think straight, think straight. Well, what is the word? Rebuke them sharply. Meaning, cut away wrong thinking. Cut away wrong thinking. That means sometimes my preaching will offend you. I I do not apologize for that. I never set out to offend you. I I have no desire. But when the preaching does, as long as it's the gospel, so be it. I have a job Elders have a job to cut away, to cut away perhaps something you believed. Like a surgeon, when he or she goes in, cuts away infection. Elders must cut away. Why? Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Why does Paul go here? It seems such a sharp right turn. To the pure all things are pure, but to the unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Paul, what are you trying to say? What Paul is trying to say is that there is a clear dividing line. While legalism isn't to be uh, 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 allowed, uh, uh, tolerated, there there are some things uh, uh, in which you must take a stand. What is it? Well, there's pure and impure, and there's defiled, and there's a clean conscience. And so what produces the pure and what produces the defiled is the gospel. That's what he's saying. What are you saying is that when you live a gospel-transformed life, then you are made pure by the gospel. And if you don't know Christ, you, are, you have a defiled conscience. There, there's nothing an unbeliever do, can do to permanently take care of his heart. Only Christ can do that. Tim Keller says the gospel is that I am so sinful Jesus had to die for me and I'm so loved he was glad to die for me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, uh, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That would be Old Testament, by the way that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So, so an elder's confession is by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's an elder's confession every single time. That when I stand up here and preach to you, or when elders lead a congregation, uh, elders lead not out of a sense of superiority, but a sense of great indebtedness to the grace of God. 
and that our consciences are clear and undefiled only because the blood of Christ has been applied to our lives and thereby we are free to live for God and to walk with him. That is the source. We are who we are by the grace of God. An elder is an unworthy gospel confessing, grace proclaiming follower of Jesus. That's who we are. Oh, we have so dirtied that with other things. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul draws a real clear distinction here. And it is not moralism. He's already blasted any kind of legalism. No, it is gospel confessing faith. So what is the gospel? Uh, The biggest danger to most of us is moralism. You say, what do you mean? I've had two conversations this week, both with uh, unbelievers, in which they both talked about their good works. When I ask them about their relationship with God, their immediate answer had to do with good things they had done. My guess is that for most of you, that's your greatest danger. It's good things you've done. It's it's the good you do for the community. It's what you contribute to the society at large. It's reading the paper and saying, well, at least that's not me. And so you may have a really good dose of religion, which personally, uh, growing up in a preacher's house, I had until I was 15. Good kid. Never gave my parents grief. Religious. In every way. Church attendance. Check. I worked since I was in sixth grade. Paid tithe from the get-go. Check. Only read the King James. Check. Right? Didn't listen to Carol Davis on the radio. Check. I I just did all those things. And I thought I was good until a Tuesday night. Went with Dad to a revival. Sitting second row, right behind all the preachers, right? Because that's my tradition where the preacher's kids sat. And I'm sitting there. And this preacher gets up to preach. And for whatever reason... I cannot describe it to you other than the grace of God for the first time in my life. I realized I was lost. I realized I needed Christ. And I could not wait for the preacher to get done so I could, in our tradition, you had to be down here for that to happen, right? And I couldn't wait because I I could not stand to, to live another moment in my lostness. So let me share with you religion versus gospel. This will be on the screen. Religion says, if I obey, God will love me. The gospel says, because God loves me, I can't obey. Religion says it depends on what I do. The gospel says it depends on what Jesus has already done. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion has an uncertainty of standing before God. 
the gospel has certainty based upon Jesus' work. Religion motivates through fear and insecurity. The gospel motivates through grateful joy. Religion says, I'll obey God in order to get things from him. And the gospel says, I'll obey God to get delight in him and resemble him. Religion says, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And the gospel says, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I would ask you this morning, are you religious? Or do you believe the gospel? Let's pray. Our team is going to come. We're going to share a song. And if you'd like, I'll be here to pray with you and for you. You don't have to come down here. We know that. But sometimes it's good to have this opportunity as the Spirit is moving and working just to say, I want to act on that now. I want to receive Christ today. I want to bring this burden to the altar today.